you can't find one of these after our ushers walk up with a handful of these and as they walk back, you just kind of signal them with your hand and they'll pass you one. You're welcome to take these home if you would like to. Uh, these are the vision statement of our of our church. And uh, we are going to use them this Sunday and then we'll use them again next Sunday because we are in the middle of preaching our way through the fresh initiatives on page three. So page one is on the banner there that we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all people. That's who we are at Bethlehem. That's what we exist for. Then there's a spiritual dynamic that we spoke of, and now we're on page three, and we've preached on four of these, and there are two to go. The third one, racial reconciliation, and the last one, challenging the church and culture with the truth. So today is Martin Luther King Sunday, an ideal Sunday on which to tackle number three. Next Sunday is the Sanctity of Life Sunday across our nation, and an ideal Sunday in which to tackle number six. So that's the plan for the next two weeks. And so as we begin, let's read. I'll read for you. Number three. Interracial reconciliation against the rising tide, the rising spirit of indifference, alienation and hostility in our land. We will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial reconciliation expressed visibly in our community and in our church. Now, the more I look at uh, what the Bible says the church is supposed to be, and the more I look at our culture and the turmoil of what it is in its uh, Multicultural tensions, the more glad I am that the master planning team and the elders elevated interracial reconciliation to this place here on the Fresh Initiatives. It would be very easy for me to imagine that we would have six things we're going to invest in as a church and that wouldn't be there. I mean, of all the things you could choose to pour fresh energy into, that could be easily omitted. There's a lot of things we could say, and it isn't omitted. And I regard it as a work of God's hand and grace that of, of all the things that we could say we're going to focus on, we're going to have a fresh initiative in, we're going to pour energy into, this is one of them. Last week... In the newspaper on Wednesday, I read this. There is strong evidence that stressing differences does little to improve race relations and may even exacerbate them. For example, the Minneapolis and St. Paul school districts have made costly diversity education a top priority for decades. Nevertheless, the Minneapolis district recently announced that, quote, embedded racism continues to permeate its schools. While in a 1994 study of the People for the American Way found that, quote, race relations and tolerance in St. Paul Public High Schools are crumbling. And the situation isn't good in the churches either, because 
I was just talking to one of our black friends who comes to this church and was cataloged the kinds of things that she's heard just in recent months that are so demeaning, so belittling. And it works the other way. I was talking to a black pastor a few weeks ago. And uh, a white person has recently been attending his church. Almost no white people at this church. And one of his black brothers came to him and said, I have to hassle white people all day long. I don't want to have to hassle them on the weekend. So it's time, it's high time and it's ideal time on this weekend to focus some energy and effort. Because things not are, are not the way they should be. Things aren't the way they should be. Not in our hearts, not in our mouths, not in our church, and not in our society. So here's what I want to do. I want to uh, lay out a biblical foundation for thinking and acting and feeling and speaking about race in the form of eight theses. Like Martin Luther had 95, I got eight. And if I had more time, I'd have more. But I've only got time for eight. Here they are. This is an effort to provide a biblical foundation in these matters. Number one, God made all ethnic groups from one human ancestor. Acts 17:26. God made from one every nation... Of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Acts 17, 26. Now, notice two things from that verse. Number one, God made ethnic groups. That little phrase, every nation pun. Ethnos in Greek. You hear that word ethnos? Ethnic. Get ethnic from the word ethnos. This is the word here. Every ethnos. Every ethnic grouping. God made every ethnic group. Ethnic groups did not come into being by genetic fluke or evolutionary accident. This text is crystal clear. God made every ethnic group. He made them. Second observation is this. He made them from one ancestor. You see that? God made from one every ethnic group of mankind. Now, the reason that is important is the context. He's talking to Athenians. He's on the Mars Hill or Areopagus. Gathered around him there in Acts 17 are philosopher types and proud Athenians who love to hear new things. And so whenever a new teacher comes to town, they gather to hear new things. One of the things we know is that Athenians prided themselves in being autochthonos. 
It's a rare Greek word that they love to use to describe the fact that they were self-sprung from their own soil, meaning we didn't emigrate here from any place or anybody. We are Athenians. We belong here. We grew up here. We came from nobody and no place. We are Athenians. Autochthonos. Now, Paul's got just a few minutes before he's going to get shouted down. What would you include in your sermon to the Athenians? First shot. Paul says, the God I bring you is a God who made you, Athenians, from one, along with all the barbarians and Scythians that you despise. You are cut from the same cloth. That's the point of this text on Mars Hill in Athens. God made from one every ethnic group, in that context, including you proud ethnocentric Athenians. You look down on those Scythians up around the Black Sea and those barbarians beyond. I have a message. There is one God who made you and made them from one. Thesis number two. All the members of every ethnic group are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, put that together with Acts 17.26. The point in Genesis 1 is that the first being, human being, is created in the image of God. The point of Acts 17.26 is God made every ethnic group from that one. Conclusion, every ethnic group and every member of every ethnic group is in the image of God. Unique among all the creatures on the face of the earth. No matter skin color, no matter facial features, no matter hair consistency, no matter any other genetic trait, every human being in every ethnic group has an immortal soul in the image of God, which means at least a mind capable uniquely among all the creatures of certain kinds of rational processes and a heart or a spirit capable uniquely among all the creatures of moral judgments and spiritual affections. And because of that, this being called human is capable of a relationship with God that no whale, no porpoise, no monkey ever could or will. There's an infinite qualitative difference. Every member of every ethnic group is created in the image of God. Thesis number three. Now, this one's a little bit difficult. When I said it in the first service, I saw question marks on lots of faces because the grammar is hard. I'm trying to express something that um, isn't easy to get into a thesis 
but I'm going to try anyway. In determining the significance of who you are, in determining the significance of who you are, being a person created in the image of God compares to ethnic distinctives like the sun at noonday compares to a candle. I'll say it again. <laughs> In determining the significance of who you are, being created as a human being in the image of God compares to whatever ethnic distinctives you have as the sun shining at noonday compares to a candle. In other words, finding your main identity in whiteness or blackness, or redness, or yellowness, or any shade along the continuum, finding your identity in that is like carrying a candle to light the noonday sky. Color and ethnicity have a place in our priorities. Like candles have places. But the main glory and the main wonder of our identity as human beings is that we are created in the image of God. The primary glory of who we are is what unites us in God-like humanity, not what divides us in ethnicity. If you don't grab that, you will be hard put to helping some little children find their way. One of the reasons, I believe it is the most fundamental reason why diversity training, which that article was about in the Tribune, fails again and again and again to achieve its purpose to create mutual respect and affection and harmony, one of the reasons it fails is because it focuses major attention on something comparatively minor while focusing virtually no attention on what is infinitely major. Namely, that what unites us in this society is that we are created in the awesome image of a living God. And that is never spoken of. And since it's never spoken of, the very ground and the very foundation of what can hold us together in all of our diversity is never dealt with. And what is of comparative Small significance is made all-encompassing so that there is no framework in which to handle it at all. When you elevate a candle to the sun, it will not work. 
If our children have a hundred eggs, let us teach them to put 99 eggs in the basket called created in the image of God. And one egg in the basket called ethnic distinctives. Thesis number four. The prediction of a curse that Noah spoke over some of the descendants of Ham in Genesis 9.25 is irrelevant in deciding how the black race is to be viewed and treated. Say it again. The prediction of a curse that Noah spoke over some of the descendants of Ham, his son, in Genesis 9.25, is irrelevant in deciding how the black race is to be viewed and treated. Now, you may not even know what I'm talking about. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. And I know about this and... I know how it lurks in the back of minds, Christian minds. For hundreds of years, Christians, some Christians, have made the effort to argue that because of the curse of Ham, African peoples are to be kept subservient to the Aryan race. Descendants of Seth and Japheth. The resurgence of white supremacy and incredible racism in our day will no doubt bring with it the resurgence of this old thing. So, I want us to look at this text. Because it takes no great genius to see that this has no foundation in the scriptures. If you want to turn there with me in Genesis 9... 21 to 25, I'll show you why. Genesis 9, 21 to 25. Now keep in mind that Noah has three sons, and from these three sons, the nations are spreading out again after the judgment of God in the flood. His sons are named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And... Part of the meaning of the story of Noah after the flood is that sin enters the world, as it were, afresh, just like it did with Adam in the beginning. Starts all over again with Noah. Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. So he's making an absolute fool of himself here, uh, lolling around naked in his tent as a drunken man. Created in the image of God. And his son Ham, it says in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, which is going to be a very significant little comment in a minute when you realize how the curse is going to flow. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, what he should have done at that point is been terribly embarrassed and felt shame for his father and covered him and kept his mouth shut. That's what should have happened. It didn't. 
he went and he told his two brothers outside about his father's shame. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Didn't even want to look upon it. So jealous were they of not bringing any further shame upon their father and his folly. And their faces were turned away and so they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so he said, cursed be Canaan. Odd. Cursed be Canaan. That's the youngest son of Ham. A servant of servants, he shall be to his Brothers, now notice three things. Number one, Noah takes the occasion of Ham's disrespectful behavior and uses it to predict a judgment from God that is going to come upon the descendants of Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Now, there are a lot of questions in this text that. We would like to have answers. And there are answers. But I only have time to mention the things relevant to my point here. Someday, he says, the descendants of Canaan, Ham's youngest son, are going to be overpowered by the descendants of Seth and Japheth. And they're going to be their servants. And that's going to be a judgment of God. And we will learn that it's going to correspond to the evil of the Canaanites. The Canaan nights. The judgment of God never falls on the innocent people as judgment. If judgment is decreed, it's because evil is coming underneath. Now, Ham has four sons. You see them in chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The one referred to under the curse. Broadly, Cush refers to the Ethiopians and the peoples in that area. Mitzrayim refers to the Egyptians and the people in that area. Put refers to the Libyans or North Africans and the people in that area. And so the three of Ham's sons were, in fact, the African peoples. Canaan is the one son that has no connection with Africa. You can see... Canaan's descendants in chapter 10, verses 15 to 18. Canaan became the father of Sidon. We all know where Sidon is, Tyre and Sidon in Palestine. His firstborn and Heth and the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite and the Arbidite and the Semarite and the Hamathite. None of those are African peoples. All those peoples were inhabitants of the vicinity of Canaan, not Africa. And the prediction that Canaan would serve his brothers Seth and Japheth came true when Israel moved in and cleaned house on the wicked nations of Canaan. And it became the promised land. 
Second observation of this text. When God pronounces a judgment on a people, that does not define how you or I deal with individuals in that nation. Suppose judgment is decreed for America, which it may well be. That does not mean that you, being a child of God, are now licensed to go out and join God in the judgment and bring misery on people. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. Now, that means that let's take Canaan and the judgment that was coming upon Canaan. How should people relate to Canaanites? In chapter 14 of Genesis, there's an example of a Canaanite. His name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek comes out of nowhere in Canaan. Abraham is a foreigner now, and he has just rescued his brother Lot from uh, captive captivity, and he meets this Canaanite named Melchizedek. Verse 18, and uh, he is king of righteousness, king of Salem. He blesses Abraham, priest of God most high. And Abraham pays tithes to this Canaanite. From which I conclude, woe to us if we say, oh, there's a judgment on this group. Canaanites. Therefore, we should now deal with individuals in that group as people worthy of our wrath, which is not true. You deal with individuals as individuals, and God takes care of the corporate dealings with a people. Third observation from this text. This is perhaps the most important and the most glorious Three chapters later, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God undertakes a redemptive plan with Abraham, chosen from all the nations, in which he now begins a rollback of all curses in the world. We're all under a curse, you know. Genesis 3 was the great curse upon humanity. We are all cursed and doomed to hell. Because of our sin. Now, what God does here in Genesis 12 is begin a great redemption. And he says in verse three to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. He doesn't say except for the Canaanites. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse. There will be a curse, but it will now fall upon those who choose against the blessed seed. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that includes the families of the Canaanites. 
So already three chapters later, God, having said there's going to come a great curse upon the peoples of Cana, Canaanites, the Canaanites. He, he moves right in with a redemptive plan by which he says, I can lift the curse from anybody and there will be a blessing on any family who will draw near to my provision through this line. And this line comes to a climax in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. And when he dies on the cross, he bears the curse of everyone who is in Christ and he frees us from all of our sin. And if anybody has ever spoken a curse upon you of any kind, it is lifted in Jesus Christ. The church is a great place to be free. Therefore, I conclude this so-called curse of Ham is the prediction of a judgment on Canaan. And it came true when the wicked nations were judged by God through the people of Israel. And it has nothing to do with the subservience of the black race. Nothing. Thesis number five. It is God's purpose and command, therefore, that we make disciples for Jesus from every ethnic group in the world without distinction. It is God's purpose that we who have been redeemed in this wonderful line of Abraham, climaxing in Jesus Christ, that we make it the aim of our church and our lives to make disciples of every ethnic group. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, that little phrase, all the nations, is the same phrase in Acts 17, 26. He made from one every ethnic group. And now he says, go and make disciples of every ethnic group. So it's as if he's saying, I created all these ethnic groups. Every one of them bears my image and is designed to glorify me in every diversity of color, shape and size and everything. And now, even though a curse of sin has fallen on all of them, not just the Canaanites, I have undertaken to redeem them in Jesus Christ and I dispatch you all to find my sheep and make disciples from every ethnic group and bring them in so that all that I designed for them to glorify me with comes into its own. And they can indeed glorify me. Being created in the image of God does not mean anybody is saved. And all of us, though, we're created to glorify God with our unique blackness, whiteness, redness, brownness, and every shade in between. We are created to glorify God with that uniqueness. It's all defiled by sin. And only in Jesus do we have forgiveness for that sin, healing for that brokenness, cleansing from that defilement, and liberty for that purpose. To glorify God with our ethnic distinctives, our little thimbleful of uniqueness in the ocean of significance belonging to our identity as the image of God. Thesis number six. All believers in Jesus Christ of every ethnic group are united to each other, not only in our common humanity, in the image of God, but in our bond in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters, members of the same body. Romans 12, 4 and 5, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, 
So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually, individually members of one another. The church has a black hand and a white wrist. And the black hand cannot say to the white wrist, I have no need of you. And the white wrist cannot say to the black hand, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. The church has a red arm and a yellow shoulder. The red arm cannot say to the yellow shoulder, because I am not a shoulder, I have no need of you. The yellow shoulder cannot say to the red arm, because I'm not an arm, I'm not a part of the body. The image of the body is very powerful. Add to it the image of the family. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Now, I lose the possibilities of language here. I, I stretched as far as I knew how a few minutes ago when I said, in determining my significance as a human being, being created in the image of God compares to my whiteness like the sun compares to a candle. Now, here I am, and I've got to find words that handle this reality. In determining who John Piper is, I not only have this sun-like truth that I am created in the image of God and thus set apart from all other creatures on the face of the earth, I now have to add the fact that I am recreated, born again. By the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. Into the image of Jesus Christ. His son. Adopted. Not just as a human. But as a reborn. Recreated. Resurrected. Christ-like human. Into an everlasting family. Different and above. The human family. Now, how am I going to compare my whiteness to that? Thimble in an ocean? Or your blackness and that? Or your Asian tint and that? If we do not feel the magnitude of what it is to be created in the image of God on the one hand, and bump that up 10,000-fold to be recreated in the image of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God and conformed to the image of His Son and adopted into His family and given the heirship of the kingdom. If we cannot feel that 10 million times more important than our color is that, we will be of no use in this society on this issue. Very few people get it. In this society. I know. What I will say. To tell at the root. I know. What I will say. 
And whether she is told that by anybody else makes no difference to me whatsoever. For I have it on the authority of Almighty God. What is the ranking of values in this world? And to be created in the image of God is an unspeakable thing. And to be recreated by the Holy Spirit in the image of Christ is a speechlessly greater thing. And in that noonday sky of glory and in that ocean of significance, she will find the place of her color. And it will be small. Thesis number seven. The Bible forbids intermarriage between believer and unbeliever, but not between members of different ethnic groups. The Bible forbids marriage between believer and unbeliever, but not between People of different ethnic groups. 1 Corinthians 7.39 A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. The issue in marriage is what allegiance do you bring to this union? That's the issue. Which is why in the Old Testament the Jews were forbidden from marrying the pagan nations. Let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with the nations. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled. This is not a color mixing issue. This is not a customs mixing issue. This is not a clan identity issue. The issue is, will there be in this most sacred of all human unions one allegiance? That's the issue. If you are married to an unbeliever, the Bible says very clearly, stay married. And be the very best spouse you can be. But if you are not married to an unbeliever. It forbids you to marry an unbeliever. And the issue is. Will you bring two diametrically opposed life orientations and allegiances to King Jesus into this holy union? 
And the answer is, you shall not. And that is of such a magnificent significance, it causes every other difference to pale. So that in 1967, when Noel and I were at Urbana 67, and there's a panel of missionaries, and the students stood up among 15,000 and asked the question, what do you do if you bring your children up in Pakistan? And having gone to school with Pakistanis, your daughter wants to marry a Pakistani. And the head of the home mission board of the Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Board, Warren Webster, with bold prophetic words said, One thing matters. Oh, that she might not marry an unbelieving American banker. But if she marries a God-man in Pakistan, I thank God. Finally, the simple conclusion is to pick up my master planning folder and say, thesis number eight is, O Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, Let us, against the rising spirit of indifference and alienation and hostility in our land, embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial reconciliation expressed visibly in our community and in our church, which I take to mean at least this. Let us banish belittling and unloving thoughts from our brains. And let us put every word or tone of ridicule and disdain out of our mouths. And let us go out of our way to show personal, affectionate oneness with Christians of every ethnic group. And let us be salt and light out there in this city among the hostile and fearful society with courageous acts. Of interracial kindness and respect. And in short, therefore, let us look to Jesus. And receive forgiveness. Every one of us needs forgiveness. I tell you, if I were to document for you the sins of my youth in this issue, I would be so ashamed. Nobody grows untainted. Grows up untainted. Not at Roosevelt High or at Wade Hampton High School. Wade Hampton. You know who Wade Hampton is? He's a Southern general. Our colors were red and gray. We were fighting the war every day in the school I grew up in. Let us look to Jesus and receive forgiveness. There's nobody else that can heal this thing. There's nobody else that can wash it away. The sins of racism. Nobody else can begin to restore and heal. Nobody else can give you new energy. Nobody else can give you the wherewithal to say, I lay it down and I embrace it. I move forward. But Jesus can. The power to love like Jesus is very strong. Let's pray. Lord, these words are a Christian, I believe, biblical worldview for how to see race, how to see the church, how to see our destiny, how to see our creation, how to see our society. 
And I pray that you would sanctify it to us. That you would come and apply it. You would transform lives. That you would make us a church of one heart and one mind on this issue of racial reconciliation and harmony. Draw us back together tonight, Lord, to do business about this, I pray. Fill us with your spirit of love. If there are any in this room who are too far away from you to even appropriate the resources of Jesus, draw them in right now. Let this be a converting moment. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.